0: That night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God.
1: Greetings! You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders Podcast.
0: Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North
1: American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican, and I am joined today once again by Andrew Brazier.
0: Glad to be with you, Jesse. Uh, Andrew Brazier. I'm a deacon in the special jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy, and uh, also volunteer as a chancellor. Glad to be back with you.
1: Absolutely. Excited to uh, jump back into The Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore. We have been trucking through the first three Roman numeral sections. And last time, I uh, was able to discuss the first half or so of Roman numeral four with uh, Father Isaac Rayburg, And so that means you and I, Andrew, get to pick up where we left off at uh, a paragraph towards the bottom of page XXVI uh, that starts with, we have seen how a modern Roman Catholic. So if you're following along while you're listening, uh, feel free to turn to that section or just listen. That works, too. (laughs) Um, Don't read and drive. That's what we're telling you. Right. Right. That's our one stipulation. Don't read and drive. Listen and drive. That's so much easier and safer. Um, Well, with that said, I'm just going to jump into this first paragraph, and uh, Andrew and I can pick it apart for nuggets of goodness here. We have seen how a modern Roman Catholic apologist applies the law of the voie moyenne to the Christological formula drawn up at Chalcedon. There is, in the same author, an eloquent passage, uh, that author would be Bardi, I guess, in which he shows how the Catholic of today is united by the long continuity of tradition with the ancient fathers holding the same articles of faith, worshipping in essentially the same forms, employing many of the same words to express the deeper emotions of his heart before the majesty of God, it is a stirring appeal to the imagination intended to enforce the attraction of Rome as against the aridity of the merely Protestant service. But, reading it, One asks what, if these pages had fallen under his eyes, would have been the response of an Anglican Protestant of the 17th century who claimed also to be genuinely Catholic, to whom the unsurrendered memories of the past were as the very breath of life, and who was passionately devoted to the liturgy and forms of adoration so marvelously transferred to his own native tongue in the prayer book. Certainly he would have been moved by the nobility of the French abbé's sentiment. Certainly he would have accepted the perpetuity of tradition as a power that confirms the truth, while it enhances the grace and poetry of worship. But, with equal certainty, he would have contended that the obstinate retention by Rome of discordant elements added in the darker ages... Enveloped the core of truth to such an extent as to obscure what had been handed down from the beginning. To the Roman apologist, for continuity, he might have uttered the Virgilian retort sic vos non vobis. Um, and I what, this is one more time when I really wish my Latin was uh, was up to snuff. <laughs> Do, are you are you uh, you have a a definition of that phrase there, Andrew?
0: (laughs) You know, I can tell you what Six Semper Tyrannus means, only because I'm a Civil War buff. Oh, um, nice. Sadly, this one uh, I do not know. And once again, the need for you and me to take Latin is just becoming more and more self-evident. So uh, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe I'll just use Google here, (laughs) which I'll show you doing the same thing. So, listeners, we're not ashamed to admit we don't know everything. And Absolutely. We use Google to assist us. Not right. Wikipedia, but Google. So.
1: That's right. And you <laughs> didn't even have to Google this because we Googled it for you. Or you already knew this and you're screaming at the speakers right now, which is... Probably, probably that. You know, tot- rolling your eyes, screaming at the speaker. Totally understandable. This is; These are the words Virgil wrote on the wall when Bathilus, another poet, had plagiarized his work. So for you, but not yours, is a sort of, uh, I guess in this context, um, meant to say that the tradition of reverence and and being in connect, connection with the, the worship and the devotion of the early church um, sort of is for Roman Catholics, but it doesn't belong to them. They don't have the uh the ownership so to speak on on these matters it belongs to the whole of of christian uh, of christendom and you know i i think this um this other point that moore makes that you know the 17th century anglican protestant would would want to say that there are ways in which your um additions and new elements, discordant elements, as he calls them, um, have sort of obscured the core truths, to some extent, of what the liturgy was meant to bestow and to communicate. And I think that's you know an, a really important, you could say, uh, apologetical point. But it's one that Protestants believe mm-hmm. that um, you know Rome gets certainly gets some things right but this point is, you know is that they get what they get wrong is that they in many ways distract us from the core teachings of Scripture which is very much uh, about Jesus the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us um, so yeah I think it, and again that that if you've uh, been listening to the previous episode that's a, a bit of a continuation of of um, the theme of Anglicans kind of identifying the major the major uh, themes of Christ in Scripture as being the nece- what's, what is necessary to believe for salvation as opposed to the Roman view which tacks on a whole bunch of other stuff.
0: I agree. Uh, I would add that it kind of goes to if you, if you have your Book of Common Prayer, Uh, If you're not Anglican, you're listening to this. The Book of Common Prayer governs our worship and has uh, typically the 39 articles attached to the end of it. And the 39 articles at the end, those first uh, approximately, I think, eight articles basically lay out the case for why we Anglicans are Catholic Christians, that Mm -hmm. we have not abandoned the historic faith, going through the creeds, going through the Trinity, going through what is uh, Holy Scripture. And not only that, but at the... uh, beginning and middle of the Book of Common Prayer. We have the Apostles' Creed in several places in our daily offices. Uh, we have the Nicene Creed. Right. And then, sadly, the American context took out the Athanasian Creed, but, uh, fortunately, uh, ACNA, uh, has reincluded, uh, reinserted the Athanasian Creed and also some jurisdictions like the Reformed Episcopal Church, um, put the Athanasian Creed back in. Right. Their yep. prayer books. And all those are Catholic creeds. So, I really appreciate how he says that for the 17th century Anglican, you know, his response, and he specifically says the Anglican Protestant of the 17th century would say, I'm also Catholic. You know, everything that you're claiming, you know, fictional Roman Catholic of having this connection to the, the tradition of the ancient fathers, you know, holding the same articles of faith and worshiping in essentially the same forms, we too, you know, can claim that same heritage. Our dispute. Is going with the, the added uh, doctrines uh, that have been, as he said, elements added in the darker ages that have uh, enveloped the core of truth. That's where we have our our disagreements with uh, the Roman Catholic. There's a lot we can agree on, but we have disagreements to what has been added to the foundational structure of what our faith is.
1: Yeah, um, I think this is a, a it's a good point to realize that. Our dispute with Roman Catholics is different in nature than our dispute with, um, you could say, sort of the Free Church evangelical, who really has no desire to see themselves as quote unquote Catholic, even though they may, you know, sort of teach all the articles of the creeds, um, you know, maybe, maybe not. I think some of the some of them like. Uh, the communion of saints or, uh, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, you know, tend to be, uh, either underappreciated or, or not held to at all and to some extent, but yeah, our dispute with Rome is, is really an inter-Catholic dispute. Um, and one that says, you know, you guys have really added to the faith. You've the, the, the requirements for salvation, um, have been bloated, <laughs> so to speak. and it actually reminds me of that C.S. Lewis letter where um, you know, it must have been a Roman Catholic friend had written him, you know, asking him why he hadn't, hadn't gone to Rome or wouldn't go to Rome or if he would. And uh, one, one thing, you know, an important point that he makes is that if... You know the problem with your church, he says, is that um, I don't have to sign my conscience uh, over to what you believe now, but actually what you have believed believe now, and whatever you're going to teach into the future, right? And you know, which is this whole idea that it just keeps adding on more and more. Um, and in the previous section, Moore talks about sort of you know, according to a Protestant-Anglican perspective, there are uh, legitimate ideas of development and then illegitimate ones. And I think uh, he says that the legitimate ones are the ones that you can hold up to the scrutiny of Scripture, and they, they, you know, they stand the test. And uh, the consensus has been that much of what um, has become part and parcel to Roman Catholic belief over the centuries doesn't quite uh, hold up to the test.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. And I think it's, uh, I was having a discussion with a friend the other night about, you know, that Lewis's quote, you know, that, I'm glad you brought that up about what, you know, what you, the, the Roman Catholic Communion, will believe in the future. You know, we, we see a, a live example of that when the First Vatican Council occurs. And you have a, a schism of the old Catholics breaking off from the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Church because of the doctrines of uh, papal uh, infallibility uh, and the Immaculate Conception, as I recall, it was also defined as dogma at that council. So, right.
1: Yeah. Um, what was uh, a, an old priest friend told me once that uh, there that in, there's an old cartoon you can find because you know the the First Vatican Council actually is a a modern, a modern day, uh, council, but there was an old newspaper cartoon where I guess there was the Pope at the time is kneeling before a statue of Mary and, uh, and he says, thou art, uh, immaculately conceived. And then she sort of flattered says thou art infallible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to return return the fake <laughs> you've got to send me that. yeah, if good. I can find it we'll I'll send it we'll, we'll post it on the show notes if any I, if any listeners is aware of this cartoon please uh, send it to us so uh you know that that might just be uh
0: my Roman Catholic buddies will we'll appreciate it we'll get a kick out of it right
1: so. absolutely hopefully <laughs> don't don't hate us Roman Catholic friends we're we're just just uh, telling you the Anglican side um but you're right uh developments whenever something new comes along you're always going to alienate those who are pretty connected to the old way so to speak and and this goes both ways right when when the reforms took place there were people who thought that that was a new thing um and you know reasonably so if it wasn't quite explained i'm sure at the lay level um and they thought that that uh the the roman catholic faith was the old faith and that this was a new thing whereas the reformers certainly saw themselves as uh trying to remove some unnecessary and new ideas in order to get back to an older purer version so i understandably from different perspectives this can look and work different ways but the, de- the details do matter and uh And these are things that can and should be debated by Mm -hmm. theologians, and um, the case needs to be presented with uh, facts and history and all of that jazz.
0: And the one thing that I'll add is that the—that's why I think it's important for listeners, if you're not as well-versed on the history of the Reformation, to give you a quick— soundbite on it, the magisterial reformation. If you ever hear that, magisterial magistrates dealing with the emperors, the kings, the rulers in power. Mm -hmm. The magisterial reformers are those of Luther, Lutherans, Calvin, you know, typically the Calvinists, you know, the continental reformation, and then Thomas Cramner, the Church of England, the reformation in England. Mm -hmm. All of those were truly reformers in the sense of they were attempting to reform the Catholic Church. And the schism that occurs between these branches of, of Christianity occur as a result of you know, uh, papal excommunication. The reformers did not actually want to go out on their own. They wanted to reform the church and were not able to do so. And so then you have these national churches. In Germany, you have the Lutherans. In Switzerland and France, you have, uh, well, in Switzerland, you have reformed. In France, you've got a mixture of Roman Catholic and reformed, and the mm-hmm. Huguenots. And the Church of England is reformed as the Church of England, the Anglican uh, Church. But to make a long story short, I want to lay this out because you also have lumped in there in your basic history book that's oversimplifying things so-called reformers who are the Anabaptists. Not to be confused with the average Baptist church today, but the Anabaptists who rejected completely the history of the church, rejected the creeds for the most part, and did not care to have any cling to the history of uh, the Christian church and so Luther and Cramner and pretty much all of the magisterial reformers were fighting a two-front war on, you know, Roman Catholics, we are Catholic, we're trying to reform the church. And Anabaptists, no, you're going off, you're literally you're going off the rails. You're, you're departing from the Catholic faith.
1: Right. Fighting it, it, a two-front war. It, right, absolutely. And, um, it, it, and it's not... 100% accurate to say they didn't care about the history of the church it's more like they sort of had invented a brand new history <laughs> that yes. that had invalidated most of the church's existence you know this this notion that that boy right after the apostles everybody got it wrong yeah. 100%, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and and nobody got it right again until the 16th century and that's uh, a pretty—it's a dangerous spot to be in. When
0: you know, thank goodness, I woke up one day and now I rediscovered the the truth, and no one knew about it for you know right. 1,600 years.
1: Absolutely, and and we see that with some of these early figures, it, it was also related to this kind kind of. Um, I personally have—I have this personal telephone to God kind of. Uh, Belief, you know, Mm -hmm. and which you could say has its modern-day descendants in certain charismatic and uh, Pentecostal movements. Although I I don't want to say that um, everyone is necessarily a a radical anarchist, um, Anabaptist that's going to uh, take over a city and and start. Practicing polygamy or whatever—I <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, just because you're a, a Pentecostal or a charismatic doesn't mean that I think you're going to do that. But there are certain, um, yeah, there's
0: theological uh, emphasis that are carried over. You know, what is old is new again, and it is interesting. Like, if you don't, you know, like to read history, I do. Well, a, I encourage you to read history, but b, I encourage you read the history of your own tradition, no matter what tradition mm-hmm. you're in, because mm-hmm. you'll be really surprised to see that contemporary American uh, denominations and evangelicalism, you know, whatever that word means these days, because it's so broad. But when you see what's happening in your tradition and what you uh, believe, and you run the thread back, you'll see these similarities of interesting. This group of Anabaptists who, like you said, Jesse, they were known for starting, you know, popular rebellions, had a lot of similarities in doctrine. You know, now there's also dissimilarities, because the average charismatic Pentecostal that I know (laughs) isn't ready to take to the streets. But uh, certain parts of their doctrine, like receiving a divine word immediately straight from God to them, that carries over a common theological uh, thread, uh, for lack of a better term. I mean, also during the Reformation, you have Arianism breaking out again. I mean, it seems to be the heresy that's just, you know, in vogue. It always comes back in one form or the other.
1: And and you can sympathize with uh, the faithful Roman Catholics who are seeing all of this and saying, look you people, you Luther, Calvin, Cranmer you have opened the door and look what came through and it's just, yeah. it's, it's nuts you know, there's literal anarchy actual rebellions and um, but you can also sympathize with the reformers the magisterial reformers as you uh, rightly pointed out who are saying, look, um, you know, th- no, our reform is a principled reform. It doesn't include mm-hmm. anything and everything. It actually um, is a Catholic reform, and it is done along biblical and creedal and traditional lines. And so much as the historical moment may have been you know, a powder keg that was going to go off and had a lot of you know, I think, um, Europe just had a lot of forces bubbling up and that were ready to explode anyways, and part of that had to do with corruption in the church <laughs> which mm-hmm. you can you can hardly blame the reformers for, um, or and or for reacting against. But um, yeah, I think, you know, this point that Moore is making that that these Anglican Protestant reformers saw themselves as, um, as you said, fighting uh, two fronts, you know, against uh, Rome, but also against uh, this radical reformation. And that's an important point, because if if you grew up sort of just a plain old evangelical Christian like I did, you never knew that there was this sort of third category of protestant that actually looking back historically was the mainstream category of protestant that saw themselves as just as catholic as rome or Mm -hmm. the east absolutely important point indeed but on that note uh why don't you take the reins here for a bit andrew and uh read on my friend what's that next paragraph in their repudiation
0: Yes, let's pick up there. In their repudiation of the Roman efforts to cover her dogmatic innovations under the authority of tradition, and in their insistence on the Bible as the sole final criterion of orthodoxy, the Anglicans stood with the Protestants. But on the other side, they departed from the reformers of the continent and from the Puritans at home in their rejection of what they regarded as an illegitimate extension of scriptural authority. Again, it was a question of fundamentals and accessories. Certain inferences from the central dogma of the Incarnation they allowed as self-evident, even in a way as essential to the faith that saves. But they hesitated over, and with the passing of time drew back more resolutely from, the doctrines of absolute predestination, effectual calling, justification by faith alone, Imputed righteousness and the whole scaffolding of rationalized theology which Luther and Calvin had constructed about the central truth out of an unbalanced exposition of isolated texts. Not that way, excuse me, not that way lay the simplicity of the faith.
1: Wow. (laughs) So, Andrew, what do you think about what you just read?
0: He comes out punching against the Continental Reformers. Yeah. (laughs) I would say. Two things.
1: Some of it gives me heartburn. Some of it I agree with. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, go, continue, please. Yeah, I would just simply
0: say the easiest way to judge this paragraph is to look to the, the 39 articles of religion. Yeah. Um, he, he, at first, I can agree with him if, if I truly understand what he means by absolute predestination. Because... Predestination is one in which you've got to define your terms to understand mm-hmm. You know, are we talking about the same type of predestination? I would presume which is dangerous that his absolute predestination uh, means not only a double predestination but perhaps even a, a double predestination and an absolute predestination of everything that will ever happen period you know, no free will as to whom I will marry or what job I will take today or if I will get out of bed sure. and certainly that's not the Anglican position Dare I say, it's also not the position of either Calvin or Luther. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, a bit of a straw man. It's more like a
1: Daniel Dennett sort of belief or whatever, you know. Like exactly. Or just automatons or something. But
0: yes. And so I would say uh, to that extent, you know, read Article 17, 39 articles. There is a predestination to life. And uh, I, would, I haven't read a lot of the Lutheran sources, so if I'm wrong on this, Lutherans, you can... You know, yell at me at our made-up email address we haven't made yet for
1: comments (laughs)
0: and and yelling. Uh But uh, I would think that we uh, align more with the Lutheran view of predestination to life. Um, Kind of stop there. We stop where Scripture is, uh, although there's plenty of Anglicans who um, believe in a double predestination, um, follow Calvin on that path, and they use Scripture to back up that belief. Um, So I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying in terms of our formularies, our Article 17 stops at a predestination of life and just says dot, dot, dot. Um,
1: Right. And and that gets into um, the issue of, and, you know, it's an issue for some people, but I think, again, it's a strength in Anglicanism where we allow for a certain variety of, of pious opinion on issues such as predestination. And, and yet, the word is in Article 17, which is called, of predestination and election. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God. Right? So, for more to say... Um, well, they the Anglican reformers they just they or the 17th century Anglicans you know which hey they had the 39 Articles as well um, that they backed away from these from these beliefs is just patently false, frankly. Um, you know, unless again, as you pointed out, there he's creating some kind of straw man that no one really believed in, which is again just a different problem, I suppose. But it, it gets worse, doesn't it? Um, we have <laughs> <laughs> It does <laughs> I, I mean, to, to say that There were there was any 17th century Anglican divine That, that denied justification By faith alone or imputed Righteousness uh, Is just um, I'm sorry, Mr. Moore You're going to have to just show me Show me one example yeah. Because I don't think it exists
0: Jesse, are you from Missouri? I thought you were up in Nebraska
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to show me.
0: <laughs> I agree. Be... I, I mean, right. like, and, it, and I'm presuming, you know, once again, but I'm presuming he's, he's building a caricature of sorts as to what is justification by faith alone. And uh, my two recommendations for the, the average listener, and we should probably do this, you know, as a later podcast when we finish up with this work, is mm-hmm. to look at the uh, the homily on the uh, salvation of mankind and by um, memory... Uh, is fading. Like, there's two, for those who don't know, who are listeners, there's two books of homilies that were uh, written during the reformational time period uh, for the Church of England so that for those uh, preachers, those priests who uh, could not do a sermon, uh, had these set forms of sermons to preach to their congregations to uh, to put out the basic doctrine of the faith. And to make a long story short, there's one that's the homily on the salvation of mankind. It also has alternative title, and I could be butchering it, but it talks about what is justification by faith alone Mm -hmm. in the Anglican context? And it's very much the reformational doctrine. It's not the strawman of just have faith, period, the end, and completely ignore the works uh, uh, that will stem and flow from a true justifying faith. So if he has the caricature in mind of just, I just believe, and that's it, period, you know, there'll be no transformation in my life. Well, that's... Not the Anglican, much less the, the classical Protestant view. You know, you have to have the Holy Spirit within you that will transform you into, uh, the, or start to transform you into, uh, the new man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that, and also uh, looking at the Articles, Article uh, Eleven. You know, right. of the justification of man. I've got tell. it
1: pulled up right here. I think we should read the whole thing. You know, just for the audience, so they can have a clear example of. How more is wrong about this? (laughs) Yeah, Article 9 of the Justification of Man. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification which you, Andrew, were just talking about.
0: Yeah, that's That's the alternative title. I forgot, like, the the real title for the the person who's listening is Homily on the Salvation of Mankind, as I recall from memory. And this is the alternative title. Uh, Ironically, when they were making the, drafting the 39 articles, they just shortened it on. Basically, this homily is about justification. So they called it the Homily Mm -hmm. of Justification, the technical title. You know the one we're talking about. (laughs) So if you're trying to use the old googly, You'll find it that way. There you go.
1: There you go. Yeah, I I just think... Here's my theory, and I'm I'm fairly certain this is probably what the case is, although I'm happy to have the listener uh, send me more mail about how I'm wrong. Uh, (laughs) I think this is Paul Elmer Moore making a pretty typical 20th century Anglo-Catholic flub on the history of the Reformation and the history of the of the Caroline Divines, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's it's been a sort of uh, an issue for, say, th- as early as the Tractarian movement to sort of claim the Carolines for Anglo-Catholicism, and mm, you know, obviously, Anglo-Catholicism means different things to different people, but but for those for whom it is almost just intended as a reaction against any Protestant doctrine or, you know, to say Roman Catholicism without the Pope or English Roman Catholicism without the Pope, so to speak, then of course you're going to want to repudiate whatever you think Luther and Calvin did that, that messed up Anglicanism, et cetera, or, or messed up the Reformation. So I, I sort of see it as a, a little bit of a knee-jerk Re- continuation of this reaction towards the Reformation, the continental reformation which i think you know modern scholarship whether anglo-catholic or evangelical or you know just classical anglican um all tends to lean towards no i mean clearly these guys were in conversation with uh the lutheran and the reformed divines and um there is, there is no 17th century Anglican uh, backing away from these doctrines that are so clearly uh, detailed in the 39 articles, which all of these men would have been um, beholden to, so... Yeah, that's my two cents. Or uh, I was, agree. that was closer Wilson. to like eleven cents, I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're not charging you for them, so don't worry about it. Oh, appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I'll just
0: say that you know, Moore, uh, in his prior paragraph, uh, cited or at least you know, name-dropped the Caroline Divines, and I would suggest to the reader, if you actually read the Caroline Divines, you see that these doctrines that he's criticizing are embraced by those same mm-hmm. divines. So. Yep. It's a little bit of, of picking and choosing uh, your history on, on that paragraph.
1: Right. And, and uh, you know, we're reading this essay because he's done the work of, you know, obviously compiling this great uh, collection of 17th century Anglican literature. And he's written this essay to sort of give his take, his summary of, of what's, what the themes are, of what's gone into them. And uh, which he may well have read without necessarily having himself uh, a deep familiarity with the formularies, with the homilies Mm -hmm. and the 39 articles. And, um, you know, I don't know what his familiarity with the prayer book itself would have been. I couldn't say. But, um, you know, as we read through this, again, we don't have to agree with more or disagree with more. But um, the nice thing, and about this essay is that he really it really lays out all these points um, clearly, and so we get to examine uh, you know these opinions and uh, hold them up to the scrutiny of uh, history. You know, ne- you know, so much of history we allow other people to do for us, and so we buy into narratives that um, have uh, certain. You know, victors uh, benefiting of over certain old debates, uh, they sort of benefit from the retelling of certain stories or certain uh, perspectives um, historically, and it's always a good idea to question that. Even if mm-hmm. in the end you're just say, you know what, the main the mainstream idea is the right one, you know, go find somebody who disagrees, just because you know. And uh, in this case, I would say that the mainstream. Is actually against more, although that might not have been the popular Anglican opinion when he wrote it. So mm-hmm.
0: I would just say, you know, uh, to those listening, ad fontes. You know, there's a piece of Latin I can tell you what it means, you know, to the sources, to the font. <laughs> that's and, right. Uh, that, that's the best way of ever doing uh, history. Um, like, I, I was trained in my undergrad from a history uh, background, and that's the only way you can really. Dive in and actually understand what was happening at the time is to read the actual works. Uh, it's not always easy. Uh, it's always nice to kind of get a, a primer, an overview written by someone else to kind of have the, the big picture. But then when you read the words of uh, the men and women who lived it, who were thinking at the time, you can judge for yourself. You know what were the doctrines they were actually holding and. For my reading, and at least Jesse, you agree with me. Hey, everyone
1: else may be That's rolling right. their eyes or shaking their heads, but it can be miserably uh, offended by us, I suppose.
0: <laughs> there we go. <laughs>
1: um, well, let me take this next paragraph, and uh, we can see what more, more, more has to say. Also, and even more hesitatingly, they followed Hooker in his protest against the Puritan denunciation of all the accessories of ritual and discipline for which specific warrant could not be found in scripture. Here they stood with Rome, insofar as they would admit the immense value of tradition in much that was vital to religious observance, though it might not be necessary to salvation. And yes, that was a Very small paragraph. And um, Andrew, do you want to just read that next very short paragraph and then we can kind of give our final thoughts on this section?
0: Sounds good. The true thread of continuity, the Anglicans held, was broken either by superimposing new and disputable dogmas upon the divine revelation after the manner of Rome or by disallowing due weight in the practical sphere of religion to the wisdom of accumulated human experience. After the manner of Geneva.
1: Hmm.
0: And that concludes section four for us. So thoughts, Jesse, as he wraps up this section.
1: I mean, once again, this is, uh, you know, I, I actually find myself agreeing with him. Mm-hmm. And also it's because what he's saying is found in our formularies. Um, Article 20 of the authority of the church. I'm just going to read that again for the audience's sake. Um, The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides, the same ought not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. I mean, this this um, article, Article 20 of the 39 Articles of Religion, is actually kind of uh, the most, I would say, directly relevant to this section, Roman numeral four, from uh, Paul Elmer Moore's essay.
0: You're spot on. I had
1: to pull it pulled up, too, as, as we were
0: reading over it, and... Uh, yeah, you know, we went from more wrong to more right, so mm-hmm. that's always nice. And uh, oh, I think yeah. he's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, the, uh, Richard Hooker, uh, who is a divine in the English uh, church, uh, who—I'll uh, make a plug here for Dr. Brad Littlejohn. Um, Dr., yes. or, or excuse me, <laughs> Hooker has uh, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity is the name of his work. And I think as memory serves, it's actually—you can buy it as one book, but it's technically seven books. Mm-hmm. Um, And Hooker writes really, really long sentences. If you thought that St. Paul was bad, just wait until you see (laughs) Hooker. And God bless Dr. Brad Littlejohn and uh, Oh, Jesse, what is the name of his institute? Uh, Oh, the Davenant Institute. uh, Thank you, the Davenant Institute. They have done work on modernizing the uh, language of Hooker uh, by doing it one book at a time. So they're little thin books, but the work they are doing is fantastic. So now... Even those of us who are theology nerds uh, who have a little bit of difficulty trying to read Hooker in the original, (laughs) you can Mm -hmm. read it, uh, thanks to the Davenant Institute through their press, uh, read an updated version of modernization, uh, basically of of taking these large paragraphs, you know, sentence paragraphs, and breaking the thoughts down so you can actually see where Hooker is going. And Hooker is magnificent. He's a must-read, if you're an Anglican um, and to that extent, the historical context that Moore is talking about, he's absolutely right. That Hooker is standing right. uh, in the place of you know, a, an opposition uh, from commonly referred to as Puritans. That word gets used really loose. There was actually Puritans right. who supported Hooker. But mm-hmm. for our purposes, the, the stereotype, for lack of a better term, Puritan who said, let's just do Geneva gown. We don't need to do any vestments, or uh, we certainly don't need to do certain types of rites and rituals. Let's just throw it all out. Hooker Mm -hmm. stood in opposition, saying, no, we are a a church that has authority to make rites and ceremonies, and as long as they're not contrary to Scripture, you can certainly use that tradition and and carry on with it. And here we see that Hooker is really just echoing uh, Article 20 of the 39 Articles of Religion.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think you know Anglicanism is sometimes called uh, a conservative reform, alongside, say, the the Lutherans, who also retained um, much of the ritual and uh, sort of adornments that the church had uh, had developed over the years and didn't see these as contrary to scripture right the the other the other way of looking at this from you could say the the genevan perspective broadly is to say well if you can't find it in scripture then you shouldn't do it right and and this other perspective that is detailed by article 20 is much more along the lines of no this as you said there's the church has certain authority but again it's not the authority to do whatever it wants <laughs> it is still bound um by the scriptures and so it it really does pave this middle position um that is not uh just a do what you want it's it's it really is a principled reform along catholic lines and along scriptural lines so yeah kudos to Moore for for uh I think really nailing that point, I think he did a good job.
0: I agree. And uh, and just for those who are listening, you'll, sometimes you may come across this while reading or, or listening, the regulative, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, the regulative principle. And the regulative principle is the one that um, uh, Presbyterians, uh, those who follow uh, Geneva, Calvin, okay. would typically hold, nine times out of ten, that's what you're going to find, is that if it's not in Scripture, then we're not going to... Have any form of worship uh, in that manner. So if there's nothing about, you know, having uh, certain vestments, having certain rites or rituals. It's not in scripture. Therefore, we as Presbyterians, Calvinists, uh, Baptists, etc., will not do it. Not always true, but that's kind of the rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. And then Anglicans would say, well, we hold to the, uh, and I would say that Lutherans too, to the normative principle of worship, that is teaching that whatever is not prohibited in scripture is permitted in worship, so long as it's agreeable to. Uh, to the peace edification of the church, you know. Obviously, if you do something that's not contrary to Scripture, but you're causing a lot of division, you start to fall into St. Paul's uh, admonition of doing all things uh, for the sake of peace and unity within the church.
1: Sure. Well, and, and that's sort of like the you know that's one way of sort of reigning the possibilities in from a pragmatic side. But I think there's also you know looking at it through the lens of tradition, which has always been the case for Anglicanism and, and for, you know, the, I mean, obviously not for all Anglicans. You know, there, there are, um, some pretty, uh, wild and crazy Anglican services you can find yourself in, yeah, um, absolutely. You, you know, but, but the tradition has been to see ourselves as operating within the tradition. There's a sense in which, um, we do belong to, uh, a family of faith and we do things a certain way and, so that's that can also be a force of kind of to to control or limit you know uh, the possibilities. Um, so hopefully you don't end up with like a bounce house in the sanctuary or or uh, you know some any other kinds of zany things that um, boy you know I don't know if you're familiar with uh, <laughs> the uh, talk show host Chris Rosebro. Um, he he has. I'm not. Uh, uh, fighting for the Faith Radio. He's a Lutheran guy. Okay. Yeah. But um, he's uh, he's got this website called the Museum of Idolatry, <laughs> and and it's I mean, boy, if you just want to see people under the guise of church, I, which I I'm I'm making finger quotes, you know, you can't see <laughs> I can it. I see but, them from here. <laughs> right, I'm just gonna let you know that you know you can hear it in my voice. Uh, just the absolute most insane things are going on whether it's like dirt bike rallies on the stage with a pastor or or actual circus performers or or you know whatever it is like a a overblown rock show you know there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which um i think that when you take the authority out of the church to use wisdom and tradition, I would say, um, and this prag- this pragmatic uh, um, issue of control of things being done decently, um, then really it kind of, in some ways, lends itself to this other phenomenon, which is anything goes. Yeah. And yeah. and when anything goes, it gets pretty weird. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yes, it does very and, quickly too. <laughs> and if it's not outright heretical, at the very least, I don't think it's very edifying for the people yeah. involved. So
0: I agree, it's not Catholic in the, you know, lowercase C uh, sense of the term. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah. Like
0: you pointed, you know, that if, if we're good Anglicans then we're we're looking back to the history of the church and uh, to what's been done, you know, everywhere at all times uh, by all Christians, Uh to mm-hmm. be stealing the line from St. Vincent of. Uh, Lorenz, which is definitely mm-hmm. not the way you pronounce it, because uh, <laughs> I don't know French, but probably Lorenz, something like that. But anyway, St. Vincent. Good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Maybe it's because my last name, Brazier, is really supposed to be French. but uh <laughs> ah, it's
1: in you. It's in your it's blood. It's in me
0: somewhere, you know. Too bad I took Spanish, but. I digress. Nice. So, <laughs> but St. Vincent of Lorraine's right in the 400s, uh, making that point, you know, of like, well, what is the Catholic faith? What's well, been believed, you know, everywhere at all times by all Christian believers? It's a pretty good rule of thumb. It, that's not a doctrine in and of itself, the Christian faith, but it's a pretty good uh, summary of what Anglicans uh, are attempting to do and what our formularies steer us mm-hmm. towards. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we have the reformational. View of uh, justification, but we have that because we're looking back to the past, and, right and frankly, looking to Scripture and then finding support also in yep. the past. Um, Absolutely, I would add also that in terms of Zany worship, that's why uh, to our Presbyterian, Baptist, and other friends who hold to the uh, uh, regulative uh, principle of worship, that's where they would point and say, "Aha! See, this is what where it'll get you." And uh, so I understand. Why someone has that uh, view mm-hmm. of worship, uh, but would say that when we're doing things, we're on our best behavior. We're still sticking to the uh, the Catholic uh, rites and traditions, and not trying to be innovative with, you know, let's look at a new, you know, slide into the baptismal font, you know, um, <laughs> oh, no. you whatever know, maybe <laughs> the next big thing. I, I hope I, that's not
1: a real thing. I'm just I throwing know, that out there. Part but, of me just assumes that it must be.
0: But, no, I only said because there's a Facebook meme going around of a, a church next door to like
1: a water park. <laughs> I've it, seen that. Yeah, you've
0: seen that. Yeah, it appears that the the slide goes into the church. You, you can tell that it's just a perspective. And it says <laughs> baptism must be you know really wild or something like that.
1: Uh-huh. But, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I think um, I mean this issue is so big, and, and I, I think it, it gets into something much bigger that we'll have to maybe unpack at a later time because mm-hmm. we're running short on time here. But. Uh, I do think that even if you've got everything right on paper and you've sort of carved out exactly, you know, a perfect, uh, you could say, constitution for a church and how it should be done, if you don't have people who are wise in charge of things, if you don't have people who are um, attempting to be faithful to Christ and the scriptures and the tradition, Um, leading the way. It doesn't matter if you've got everything perfectly set out. Any institution can fail um, in the material sense. You know, the the, the church as a whole is not going to fail. Um, You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet, um, you know, the argument has been made that the Episcopal Church... um, and, you know, no offense to conservative or Orthodox friends within the Episcopal Church, but uh, you guys aren't representative, quite frankly, of, of that church. And um, on paper, even though heretical things were being practiced by bishops and priests um, and people in high positions of authority, on paper that church continued to be Orthodox, more or less, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it became a matter of, well, who's in who's interpreting and um, and radical revisionist interpretations were being put forward by people who really just had no place um, being pastors or, or you know, th- they were really wolves in shepherd's clothing. And I think that's just kind of like a, a lesson to, you know, this issue of, you know, we want to rein things in. We want to try and protect the flock or the church from going off the rails when it comes to worship or, or theology or a lot of these different things. But I think we have to always keep in mind, and this is a lesson from history, um, that maybe we're in a better position to see and understand today than, uh, than even more or the 17th century Anglicans were, which is to say, even if you get all of this stuff right and perfect, the if the wrong people get in charge, they can, and will, take the church into some ungodly territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no uh, there's no perfect way to legislate sin out of human out of human nature. <laughs> I guess is I the point it. I'm making. You know, and, and it will always every generation will require vigilance and wisdom and. A striving for holiness and, and admitting that that's a hard thing to do, but doing it anyways, you know. So that's my that's my uh, 13 cents. I'll, I'll add a couple more cents in there, but <laughs> but uh, I really keep a tally over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's an important point because so many people seem to be convinced that well, the church got this wrong, and and here's my my goal in life is to really correct this this error or whatever. I'm going to write books or give talks or you know whatever whatever it is that they think that you know the church has failed or or if only they got this thing right then it would all be okay and I'm like no mm-hmm. actually <laughs> I don't think it will I think I think it's great that you're pointing out you know the shortcomings and, and hopefully you're coming up with solutions but I think the biggest solution is to have you know the people who really care to be standing up and um, and you know move being an agent for the renewal and the continual uh, reform of maybe not necessarily the the theology of the church, but um, the sinfulness and the corruption that just comes from the church being occupied by human beings. Absolutely. The only thing I'll add is
0: you mentioned history, and obviously I've been talking about it a lot is that uh, read about Saint Athanasius when he's fighting mm-hmm. uh, against Arianism rampant in the church. You know the bishops. You know they're entire swaths of uh, parishes across the globe um, falling into Arianism. And uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot to be learned, especially in this last paragraph that Moore writes about the true thread of continuity that for Anglicans, you know, for us to remember even in today, maybe even especially so in today's uh, current events, that we're fighting against the superimposing of new or disputable dogmas uh, upon the divine revelation. Mm -hmm. And Oftentimes it's not against Rome, it's against our own tribe. We're having to fight that. Mm -hmm. Or by disallowing due weight in the practical sphere of religion to the wisdom of accumulated human experience after the manner of Geneva. And a lot of times it's not really Geneva we're fighting against. It could be within ourselves or it could be outside ourselves. A new uh, doctrine, prosperity gospel, whatever it may be, uh, that's trying to weave itself into uh, our churches. So... We, are, we constantly, as uh, clergy and laity, have to be vigilant to, you know, ad fontes, back to the sources. You know, look to the scripture. Look to uh, what do the articles uh, provide us as a, uh, a lens to see what our faith is and uh, is about. And what is, is it not about? So we know when something mm-hmm. new is cropping up.
1: Uh, amen. And pray, right? You know, I mean, this Absolutely. is... This is our task, and and these are exactly the sorts of things that uh, make uh, Andrew and I and Father Isaac and others uh, wake up and and record podcasts every once in a while. So, uh, may the conversation continue, and may our listeners uh, hopefully continue enjoying the conversation, and uh, tell a friend, you know, uh, we... We're not getting paid to do this. Uh, we're just doing it for the love of the thing. And, I thought my uh, truck was just lost in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. 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 Yeah. Yours was. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but but I would encourage you if you like what you're hearing, share it with a friend on on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, feel free to give us an iTunes review um, or a a rating, if you will, those sorts of things can help us out and, uh, help get this, uh, podcast into, uh, new ears, which we'd love to do. So absolutely. And also like the North American Anglican. You've
0: got a Facebook page and visit the website.
1: Yes, please do. There are a ton of, uh, talented people writing there. And, uh, and I have the privilege of just trying to get their, uh, get their message in front of new eyeballs so please set eyes on that website and uh always be uh, be there in the comments we we'd love to hear what you guys are thinking about all this so on that note andrew i think uh we'll call it quits and we'll see you all when it's time to talk about uh roman numeral number five from paul elmer moore's the spirit of anglicanism take care
0: It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to to rebuild it one day when we've
1: served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the the glory of of Jesus Christ.
0: Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n o r t
1: h a m anglican.com.